So hello and welcome to another episode of Drill to Detail, the podcast series about the business, technology and strategy around analytics and big data. I'm your host, Mark Rittman, and I'm pleased to be joined once again by my old friend and former colleague, Stuart Bryson, the second funniest person in analytics, um, (laughs) talking to us all the way from Atlanta in the US. So Stuart, great to have you back. And why don't you introduce yourself to anybody who's new to the podcast? Yeah, great. Thanks, Mark. It's really an honor to be back and for my third third visit here. Uh, Always a good time. So I'm the owner and co-founder of a, of a company here in the States called Red Pill Analytics. Uh, started off with traditional sort of BI and data warehousing tools, but that's about only about 60, 50 or 60% of our business now. So we're, we're very much headfirst into some of the topics you've been discussing on the last few podcasts and, and uh, really interested in, in having this discussion. I think it's timely and especially considering your last few guests and uh you know, just uh, meaningful conversations you've had. So I hope, hopefully I can uh, stand on the shoulders of giants and <laughs> add something to the conversation. Excellent, excellent. Well, uh, Stuart, what you're alluding to there is, is kind of how I put this to you, actually, when we, we were talking about doing it, in that we've had uh, a lot of people, well, some really good, really good presenters, uh, really good guests, I suppose, really, on the show um, in, the, uh, in the last few episodes, um, talking about, I think, you know, one way to put it is the new world of, of BI and analytics and development and some of the tools that we're using, some of the platforms we're using, and um, how the techniques are changing and, and so on there. And I thought it'd be good to kind of have you back on the show as someone who, you know, like me, has been developing, you know, say Oracle-based solutions and, you know, what you might call old-world solutions in the past, to kind of give you perspective, really, on, you know, what, what works, what doesn't work, how things are different, how things are changed, and, and, and really kind of, you know, the Stuart opinion, really, on some of these technologies that we've been uh, talking about and in particular uh, there's kind of three areas that I wanted to talk about really in, in, in this show with you. Um, okay. So you know well, I want to talk about really the you know, the new cloud-based and big data originated data stores so things like BigQuery and Athena and some of these new things coming out these new kind of almost data warehouse as a service cloud kind of platforms that are coming out. Um, some of the new BI tools that are out, and one I know that you've been working with, and, and I've actually had some experience with, is a tool called Looker. So this yep. is this new take on, well, I suppose a new take on BI optimized for these new cloud-based distributed data stores, but with some of the kind of ideas coming back in that you and I know quite well from the kind of world of Oracle BI and Cognos and so on, things like semantic models and metadata and, and so on. Um, and then, you know, another area that we've both been looking at, I know you particularly you know, are interested in this, is data integration. And you've looked at things like stream sets. I know you work with Kafka and, and so on as well. You know, really, right. you know, what is it like to, to the, create these kind of, you know, real-time data pipelines? What is it like to use tools like stream sets? You know, how do things differ? Um, and it, I suppose, in a way, the, the, the essence of the question really is, are uh, some of the new tools and techniques we see coming through, um, you know, are they, is it a new paradigm? Is it a new way of doing things? Or is it, you know, is it the old problems being readdressed in some cases with tooling and techniques that are kind of immature, really, you know, scripting and so yeah. on? And that's the kind of background, really. And there's a lot of things to cover there. And so what I thought I'd do is, is, is take it in stages, really, and, and, and kind of go through the three different kind of layers we're talking about and then get your opinion on these things really so let's start I'm game off. yeah let's good well you always that's good Stuart. I'm always, always kind of game for things like this so it's kind of good but let's start off with with uh, something that's been a big kind of interest of mine over the last few months particularly in the kind of product management work I've been doing um data warehouses and service platforms like BigQuery and so on so yeah first of all do you want to explain what those things are and and why customers are interested in those kind of new ways of storing data Absolutely. If you look at, <clears throat> for instance, Athena and BigQuery, I don't know how much they like to be uh, grouped together, but it's very similar what's going on there, which is, um, you know, a Presto-based uh, query layer on top of usually um, object store uh, files, uh, J- JSON, Avro, those sorts of things. And, you know, the difference is you don't have this uh, online uh, memory uh, intensive relational database that in a lot of ways was was really born to do transactions. Transactions are what we've always tried to get around uh, using relational databases for data warehousing, find ways to load load and batch using loaders instead of pure SQL and find ways around it because of it's just not what they're they're geared for. Whereas these platforms are more for, you know, massive queries that scale, they scale for you. They don't take a lot of, uh, you know, administration. Uh, they don't 
they don't require, uh, from a storage perspective, a constant eye on storage. Uh, those sort of costs are baked in. And, you know, from, uh, you know, you can imagine someone that's that's been doing SQL for a long time, getting their hands on, on some of these platforms. And the SQL access feels, you know, feels premature in a lot of them. But you have to think to yourselves, what's what's their real goal? And their goal is to query. And so from that perspective, it's refreshing from both Athena and BigQuery when you go in there and you're defining your your schemas, you know, that they don't require you to specify. You can't even specify, you know, what's the length of the string? Um, what's the precision of the of the integer or the number? Those things are just taken for granted. And I can tell you that from my perspective, that's refreshing. Because I can always, I could always hear in the back of my mind, um, you know, the Tom Kites of the world talking about perfectly designing, you know, your tables, and, and that was always good advice for a relational system. But that stuff really shouldn't matter uh, when, we're, when we're talking about querying and, and analytics. So I, I think, uh, you, you know, they are uh, much different in that they're, you know, the the access to them is built in the browser. You go to the browser to define things like tables. You may not get the full complement of, of DDL and the things you're used to in a relational database. But at the end of the day, uh, Athena's got JDBC and REST. You know, REST is, they just released REST uh, API five days ago. We're, we're already using it on a project. You, you know, you look at BigQuery, it's mostly REST-based for access um, or tools like Looker. Mm that are built to to access these platforms. Mm. So so what kind of customers are you finding are using these services? I mean, and, and are they coming from um, you know, a big data background? Is this a case of a, a, another sort of generation of, of big data systems where they're starting to take on some kind of like, I suppose, data warehouse characteristics? Or are these on-premise data warehouse systems that are migrating to this or is it net new? I mean, who typically is interested in these really? So I'll just do a, a quick shout out for Snowflake. So if you're looking for sort of uh, a, a lift and shift mentality, uh, you've, you've built around traditional BI tools and a, that sort of traditional mindset, that's still a relational database with really um, uh, robust SQL. And that's probably what you're looking for. But when you look at the, the sort of customers that are looking to BigQuery and looking to Athena or those sorts of solutions, the, the one characteristic I think that really stands out is these are companies that are part of the digital transformation, really. They're not, they're not bystanders. They're not um, analysts sitting around looking at dashboards, trying to figure out, you know, the, the supply chain of their widgets. They're, they're building data-driven applications. So I think when you talk about building, and, and that's net new in a lot of cases, Mark, or they're being ported from on-prem big data systems. That's another sort of key that we see. I think that, you know, if if you're building data-driven applications, these are data, these are applications that are that are using data and delivering them to customers in some way. These traditional BI tools just really don't, they don't stand up to that kind of workflow. I mean, you think about developers when they want to build a, an application, and that's what we're talking about, not, not a dashboard, but an application. They expect source control. They expect regression testing. They expect some of these deployment mechanisms and, and building jars and shipping jars makes a lot of sense in those scenarios. So that's one of the, the sort of the, the things that really stands out to me. Um, you, you know, Maxime, who was your previous guest and talk, talking about what they were building at Airbnb. And I was at the Kafka Summit in New York a few weeks back and uh, Airbnb did a presentation there. And they're not delivering data to a data store that they're pointing a BI tool. They're, they're doing that stuff. But um, along the way, they're building these pipelines to interact with data, to process data in real time, to stream data. So these applications can consume them and deliver some sort of end user experience directly to their customers. So a lot of the times they're building this stuff to deliver some sort of value to their customers as opposed to just sort of internal ruminating about, you know, how many widgets they've sold, if that makes sense. Mm. Are, are you finding that, um, 
So let's take two examples there. If we took, say, Athena, uh, Amazon Athena, and say BigQuery, for example, are are, are these are, are customers coming to you and saying this is something you want to try and do? You know, this we've got a problem. We've got a problem with scale. We've got a problem with kind of agility. This is a solution we've got there. Or, or are they being sold? It. I mean, um, you know, where's the where's the problem that's being solved and who's solving it for who and that sort of thing? Really, I think we certainly have customers that have come to us and said it's got to be platform. Uh, it can't be infrastructure and it can't be on-prem. We want, we want platform and we, and we will, um, you know, carve up the edges where necessary to invest in platform. And these what, are, what does that mean in, what does that mean in layman's yeah, terms? Plat- sorry, platform as a service. Mm. They're not looking for, you know, spinning up VMs uh, and doing their workloads in the cloud on, on infrastructure, uh, virtual machines. That, uh, although that does decrease some of the administration uh, it doesn't uh, keep you from having to SSH into machines and and manage storage, manage users, et cetera. So we, we certainly have one customer in particular and a couple of others that, that have come to us and said, you know, give us platform as a service. And, though, and those customers obviously gravitate toward, um, you know, the S3 and Athena model. I mean, S3 is so pervasive. Every tool you look at from stream sets to whatever has a way to, to read and write S3. So the fact that you can build, you know, a data lake using S3 and Athena is fantastic. But I will say that predominantly we're introducing these concepts. So we're, we, we have traditional customers that are realizing, starting to see, you know, that as data sets increase, as different kinds of data sets are evolving and becoming important, they're looking for solutions. And these are some of the things that we're offering. Okay. Okay. So let, let's, look at, let's look at an aspect of that then. So something that you and I are, you know, we spent a long time thinking about in the past was data warehouse design, how we design tables, how we did kind of the, um, you know, how, how we laid them out to be efficient to query and, and so on there. You know, we, we, we kind of, you know, learned the kind of the gospel of, uh, of, of Kimball and, and materialized views and indexes and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. How, how does that differ if you're going to build a data warehouse in a platform like, say, a Athena or BigQuery. So you mentioned two two things that are that are that I'll, I'll sort of uh, mm. gra- gravitate towards. So you mentioned a model and you mentioned indexes, and I think the latter is just something you don't worry about anymore. Um, for one thing, uh, these these massively uh, parallel uh, engines such as BigQuery and Athena, they just sort of get that. Not to say that that there's not tweaking and tuning. There's partitioning at the file level that you need to consider. That's going to make a big difference in performance, but in general, uh, you, you can you can increase your your capacity. You can, uh, depend, depending on how much you're willing to pay, you can have you know, especially with with uh, BigQuery, you can have resources already spun up and available for you. But if you take a look at the model perspective, this is significantly different. Not to say that you can't do a Kimball-like dimensional model. In these technologies, you absolutely can. And if you have complex dimensions such as customer, you probably want to continue to sort of read your Kimball and, and listen to what he says. However, some of the modeling techniques that we've struggled with over the years, many to many, those sorts of things, become almost unimportant in these platforms because of nested tables. So you can store objects inside of quote unquote columns. So if you're looking for many to many relationships, you can actually store that right into one table, not necessarily, you know, completely uh, ignoring what Kimball has said about some of those techniques. But there are options in these platforms that make it a little bit that make basic modeling. It, it gives you pause to think, you know, do I continue down the same road? I've always gone down uh, or do I try to take advantage of these new techniques, you know, the Oracle databases had nested nested objects and columns for years, but no one uses them because when you're in an Oracle database or any relational database, you're typically 
designing for lowest common denominator of BI tools and ETL tools. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I I I've, I I hit that same issue as well. Where working with BigQuery, first of all, you 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 know you 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 build out your tables, you build out kind of maybe not so much facts and so on, but you you definitely are thinking in dimensional terms. And and we tend to sort of the work I've been doing recently is we might we might model it logically as 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 dimensional with facts and dimensions, but it's always then it's always um, uh, denormalized because in an engine like say BigQuery joins exactly. joins are expensive and so there are better ways of of kind of linking to dimensional uh, attributes and so on than doing that and I think there's probably a lot of systems built over the next few years by people kind of mo- moving from say relational systems to these platforms and building it in the same way and you know and and therefore it, and, and actually then blaming kind of query performance and latency on things like BigQuery actually it's not that it's the joins and I think there's a whole there's going to be a whole kind of world of of, 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 of consultancy and and I suppose best practice advice and so on around this in the future because there's a lot of systems being built I'd say suboptimally now really yeah I think when you looked at relational systems and, and the models that we that we grew up building um, space was always a, a consideration so you never duplicated data any more than you had to. You thought long and hard before you built aggregates, um, all those sorts of things. Now, in 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 this in this um, sort of cloud data store um, world, that's the cheapest thing. Uh, the the storage is the is is literally the cheapest thing. It's the processing power. So why not compute these things and duplicate your data, pre-compute them? It's definitely a design technique that that has been bubbling up for us as we've uh, moved across this void and and, and seen uh, a different way to build data applications. So, so have you? I mean, one one thing again, I've been I've been noticing is that, but even with proper table design and pre-aggregation and so on, there is still a, a latency you get with all these systems. You know, typically if you're using BigQuery, you're going to get you know a few seconds latency on every query. And you know, we're, we're used to in the world of kind of say Oracle, for example, things like in-memory, and we're used to OLAP and so on. Have have you looked at or thought about things like Druid or maybe a kind of kind of intermediate layer at all to use with some of the kind of the systems you've been building? to try and get back to that point of being kind of split second response time. Has it been an issue for you or, or what? So it has and it hasn't. I mean, I think uh, it, um, I just pulled the covers on Druid this week. So um, my first uh, real look at it. Uh, I think the the answer is yes, that that these things do show up. But I would argue, Mark, that that they have in, in relational databases for years. I mean, the query performance that a lot of our customers deal with um, is is poor and you know I think looking at the right tool for the right job as as Gwen said in your last episode Gwen Shapira said in your last episode it's okay when you have uh, something like Kafka or, or in uh, you know sort of a universal ingestion engine to go load multiple stores and that was always sort of the the, the uh, absolute no-no in building relational data warehouses is, is to not duplicate the data. But why not? If you've got a use case that requires search, if you've got a use case that requires events, if you've got a use case that requires state, whatever the use case you have, um, there is, you, you know, uh, loading uh, intermediate layers. That's mm-hmm. all the in-memory database is, after mm-hmm. all. So These are all techniques that I, that I really don't think you know, I've changed that much. There's just different names. So, so you're, you've had a background as a DBA in the past as well. Um, and a lot of people listening to this might come from a more traditional DBA background and are thinking either there's nothing for me to do in these new platforms or it, it's so different technology and different techniques that I wouldn't know where to start. If you were a DBA now, particularly a sort of development DBA, so I'm working as a DBA on data warehouse projects, what, what would the world look like for them in this kind of new world of things like BigQuery and Athena and so on? Well, so Maxime's uh, um, the show you did with Maxime from from Airbnb is a is a good one for this because you're probably not gonna sit around and and manage indexes and manage storage and manage users. That world is is I, I do believe gone. Um, and frankly, you know, good riddance in my mind. Um, I think that. To, to, to exist in this new world, you're going to have to start thinking about becoming an engineer. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be a hardcore hardcore coder. Um, and, and it's something else Maxime said in his last uh, 
in your last show was that, you know, the 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 level of of development skills that you need is 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 not necessarily what you think it is because, you know, if you were going to hand code um, a data warehouse ETL process or data process. In the old world, you're, you're, you're t- t- typically starting from scratch. You know, there's no execution platform. There's no error handling. But all of these platforms from Spark to Kafka Streams to all of these, uh, you know, Apache Beam and Flink and all the different runners that Beam has, you're, you're starting at a high level abstracted uh, coding perspective. So a lot of what you're doing is, is already built for you and you're just instantiating those objects. So I think that that there's a lot of what he said that that rings true. You don't necessarily have to be a hardcore coder, but you can't be afraid to write some code. If that's going to be something that that is sort of your <laughs> Rubicon, so to speak, that that you, you just don't want to do, you're going to have to find ways of plugging systems together as as um, enterprises are considering multiple clouds, uh, best of breed. There's always going to be configuration and integration work, plumbing, as I like to sometimes call it, that can go on there. But I think your traditional sort of operational DBA, uh, sorry, uh, to, you know, don't necessarily take my absolute word on this, but I do think from cloud to new platforms to whatever, I think those things are are sort of evaporating okay so so we've been talking about amazon talking about google and so on where where do the likes of oracle and and teradata and and all those kind of vendors uh play in this i mean we you know both you know both you and i have a background in oracle and and so on there are there still projects being started in technologies like that are those vendors kind of being relevant in this market what's your view on on that really so we have a we happen to have Several customers uh, doing OAC um, and Can you, what, what's, value, that, what's that? Sorry. Oh, oh sorry. Or, Oracle App uh, Analytics Cloud. Yeah. So the, the Oracle, and I know you know that you were doing yeah. it for the sake of your, yeah. <laughs> for your listeners. So thanks. Um, but Oracle Analytics Cloud, um, and we've got one customer in particular that was a spinoff from another from another company, and they're they're 100% net new across the board and they made a big investment in the oracle cloud so everything they're doing is in the oracle cloud from from analytics to the database and exadata in the cloud golden gate in the cloud etc um you know and and i think that the only problem with oracle is that they're just behind um they're they're building out uh first gen products that that the other cloud vendors already have and i think that that's the only problem is can they can they innovate and there's been a lot of internal change there about the way products are built about the way they're delivered etc that i think is good uh, but it's just a question of you know when anytime you're in a race and you start from you know several <laughs> several paces back it's going to be a challenge. Their first-gen products that they roll out over the next year are going to have to be really, really good. I'm encouraged by Event Hub, which is Kafka-based. I'm encouraged by some of their Spark products that are coming out. Mm. So I'm encouraged by a lot of what I'm seeing. It's just can you can you overcome, you know, the the gap. Yeah, and and I think developer developer um, access and enablement has been interesting as well. I mean, I. I I've now finally got hold of access to uh, the Elastic Big Data Cloud Service, for example, um, and, and so I've been playing around with that. But you know, that's through uh, I guess through people I know and, and through kind exactly. of history in this background as well. I think Same that here. yeah, exactly. And I think that it's all good stuff. But I think there's a huge um, kind of uh, gap to be made up there, really. And I think that um, it's interesting. I mean, I think we all wish well for, for for Oracle and other companies as well. But it's interesting to see the pace at which the big cloud vendors are now kind of like you know releasing these new platforms, getting traction on there, and so on as well. And um, let's move on then. Let's move on to, to data integration because that's another area that you you spend Specialising as well, so let's think about a couple of areas that I want to talk about. One is the changes that have come about through the focus on things like Kafka, you know, streaming data integration that I talked about with, with particularly with Gwen in the last show. And I want to talk about a tool called Streamsets that we talked, we had them on the show earlier on in the year or last year. And I know you've been working with that as well. But let, let's start actually with with Kafka. So just tell us a little bit about what you've been, what what problem does it solve, what you've been doing with it, and just set a little bit of context before we get into the detail. Yeah, so um, 
but I do a, a Kafka talk I've been doing for the last uh, uh, close to a year now, and I've been doing it at a lot of Oracle conferences. So the, the 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 picture I like to draw is that you know if you think about a relational database, its its main purpose has always been to deliver state, and by state you know inventory on hand, uh, the state of the table, what are the current values in the table. It doesn't matter how many inserts, updates, and deletes that have been issued. Um, what you typically get from a relational database is the state of that table. Kafka's sole purpose is to deliver the events that lead up to state. So, and that's where uh, data-driven platforms really thrive. So if you think about this for all of our Oracle database listeners, and I'm sure you still have quite a few of them, it's like the, it's like the redo log, but um, it's the redo log for your entire enterprise. So everything that you, you just, as a matter of principle, you'll ingest any data that you have there without worrying about what the downstream uh, application of that data is going to be. And then you start building decoupled, that's a, uh, Robin Moffat kind of hammered that point home uh, in our last conversation, decoupled, uh, decouple the ingestion from the consumption, the production from the consumption. And I think that that paradigm is really important for even traditional shops that are thinking about uh, a change in the way data integration is done because typically when you've done ETL tools in the past, maybe you put an intermediate layer, layer there that's a table. But in general, you were designing uh, source to target sort of 100%. And I think the idea of not worrying about where your target, uh, sorry, where your sources are, when you're always having a, a single ingestion engine such as Kafka, um, is is a real important paradigm shift. And, and, and I mean that in the strongest way possible. Uh, but but building on that, one more point is that um, Kafka now is a, is a, and some of this, comes from the, the Confluent platform, which is built around Kafka. But it is a complete data platform now. So you've got um, Kafka Stream. So if you want to do processing, if you want to do uh, data transformation and data pipelining and data processing, you don't necessarily need to invest in another cluster such as Spark. It's got a really expressive uh, programming language. Um, mostly, mostly written in Kafka, but there's other, uh, sorry, mostly written in Java, but there are other options. So I think that when you look at, uh, just sort of putting a stake in the ground of, of, if you really want to transform the way your, your organization sees data, you've got to put Kafka in the middle because it's the only way to really be, agnostic to where the data came from and only focus on you know what you're trying to deliver in this uh, microservice in this application or even this data warehouse so how is it different then to things like golden gate and enterprise service bus and, and every, every other kind of messaging and and, and and data kind of transport mechanism that's been out there i mean these have been there for a long time what why why is kafka no. and confluent kind of caught on really no i absolutely agree with you uh golden gate um can do a lot of this but what golden gate is always doing is delivering that data to a store, to a data store, typically another database. And although there's a lot you can do with Golden Gate, um, insert all records is an option you can put in your config file to say don't issue updates and deletes, everything's an insert. And that can give you the flavor of an event-driven um, environment, but you're still delivering it to a, a relational database who's, who's purpose for most of their lifetime has been to deliver state, not events. Um, so Kafka is all about delivering events. And you may not even uh, have to consume data from a, from a table in a database. Your application can call Kafka directly through, uh, through Java, through REST APIs, etc. Get data, get schema, get events. So you can build applications. I think if that's, you know, I made that point at the top is that it's, it's actually part of the application. It's actually part of the consumption of the data uh, in a way that, that Golden Gate and other ETL tools really haven't been in the past. So is, is this, is this um, another way of building, solving the same kind of use case and problem as ETL had, or is this for different types of application really? I mean, it, 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 and, uh, yeah, so simple question. Is, is, it, yep. is it the same use case or is it a different use case or different scenario? Consulting answer, Mark. It depends. <laughs> okay. So uh, now, now let me dr drill into that a little bit. So um, it's interesting in, in traditional ETL, uh, talking to users, talking to customers, 
drilling down to requirements. And you start trying to get from them, uh, do you need all of your event data? Do you need every update, every insert, every delete, every change? And in those traditional workflows, even the tools muddied the waters about what is change data capture? Well, it's not simply using a last modified date and pulling the state of your source table at that moment in time. It's about capturing all the events. And when you go talk to people who are building mon modern data platforms, data engineers, uh, the, the, those uh, people who are building streaming applications, they get that. I mean, that is not something you have to explain to them. And that, there's no nuance there that, you, that there's no light bulb that goes on when you finally you, you know, get across what you're trying to ask. They understand that it's part of everything they're doing. So I think there are some of these problems that are not different. We need to transform data. We need to deliver it to um, a serving layer that that um, might be made up of several different tools that's still going on. Um, but this sort of core concept of, of um, events as the source for analytic applications is I think what's really different. And yes, the tools in the traditional world are there, but they're always sort of workarounds. They're always sort of ways to make a, a traditional tool do something a little bit different. Whereas these, these data uh, streaming tools just get that you know, as as part of the sort of a core requirement. Okay. Okay. So, so one of the points that Gwen mentioned in the last week's uh, podcast was um, building uh, things like error handling, for example, and and just generally working with a, a data pipeline where the data never stops, is is quite a different. Um, way of you know quite a different environment to work with as a developer and quite a different kind of problem set and all that to, to working with batch you know they're, they're massively different how is you know your background is in batch how have you found that transition and what are the things do you are interesting and, and things to point out and tips and so on so i would say definitely the tool that we've just really gravitated toward recently is stream sets as you mentioned i mean it just has this built in the error handling you define error handling at the at the pipeline level, and then for each stage, you can choose to just accept the default error handling or override the error handling. You do things like write to write to S3, write to file systems, write to Kafka, which is what we usually do. Is is all uh, error records will go to a Kafka topic, and then you can just listen to that Kafka topic as part of your data pipeline and constantly process the error records at the same pace that they're being rejected. So I think, and, and you don't have to code that piece of it right away. There's a, there's a bit in sort of the agile um, uh, sort of way of doing things that, yeah, you do need to handle error records. You do need to, to, to process those with, with some, probably some differing logic. I think what we used to do in the, in the old ETL world is, is apply that error handling uh, logic to every single record as it's coming through. But really, in the streaming world, you don't have to do that. So you put in your, your logic that you expect for all of your data that's flowing through and then just handle the complex logic in an error stream that's really easy to use. I mean, stream sets is, a, is you know, I think it was... It might have even been you, Mark. I hate to call you out, but I think you might have said you you haven't seen the Informatica in the big data world. In one of no, that's shows. right. That was one of my one of my kind of uh, deliberately provocative statements. I think a while ago. Yeah, there I, you go. I, I haven't I haven't seen. I suppose in a way, my point was I haven't yet seen the equivalent kind of um, slam dunk solution uh, in ETL for big data that I'd seen. With I think kind stream of BI. sets is it. I yeah. think stream sets is as is as close as we can be. I mean, it, it is. If you look at um, you know, there's there's always going to be coding required. They make that relatively easy. Well, so, sure, um, sure. Just just interrupt you there. For yep. anybody who doesn't know stream sets, just kind of paint oh, a, sure. pa just paint a picture really what stream sets is really, and, so, and again how it differs from everything else that people have seen around kind of big data ETL. So I'll paint this picture by again referencing the Kafka summit I was at, and I love Kafka, and there was lots of great content there. But every slide, every presentation was riddled with code. Uh, riddle is the wrong word. It's all code, right? So you want to talk about we have a new feature. Here's a code sample, and there's nothing wrong with that because if you're building high-performing data-driven applications, you you might have to do um, a good bit of coding. 
but um, but stream sets is, is is pretty easy to pick up. It's a graphical UI. It's browser driven. Um, it runs sort of the processing engine runs either in in a standard JVM for sort of lowest common denominator processing, uh, or it can run in a lot of the Hadoop distributions. So it can it can natively execute across Spark. It can natively execute across Hadoop clusters when those stages are being uh, read from or, or written to. So it's 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 for those ODI folks that are out there. It does have that sort of ODI feel about processing um, in the right place. So if you if you have a, a Hadoop cluster and you're going to process some uh, some data. And you're pulling from or writing to it, then it's going to do most of the processing there. If you've got a Spark cluster that you've configured, you can uh, point your, your 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 pipelines, as they're called in stream sets, to to execute in Spark. And, and the fallback is that it can always execute in a JVM, which you can build up on a on a big machine if you need to. So it, it is, and it handles Kafka uh, reading from and writing to Kafka very easily, managing the consumer groups for you. Um, you know, it can it can do uh, what a lot of what we're used to. It handles schema. It can use the schema registry, or it has its own sort of built-in schema drift capabilities. So it really is a a beautiful tool, and uh, and it's great for those organizations that aren't. Um, you know, full of data engineers because maybe they're from a traditional world and they're taking this sort of maiden voyage out into the big data world. I think it's a tool that really does bridge that gap. Okay, so there's two things I want to talk to you about on that. One, one is you mentioned schema drift there, and that's that's something I'd like to to, to drill into a little bit. Um, but the point you made there about again GUI tools and the fact that kind of um, I suppose in a way the stream set is, is graphical and point and click and so on. The the point that other guests have made you know Maxime um, and Gwen is that actually that's inefficient and and engineers will always write code and code is better abstraction over data and with and the, and the complexity of the, of the of the logic that's required now in data integration routines is so complex that code is required do you think that's true or do you think it's just immaturity or or, or what so I think when you're building some of these high throughput applications that that um, a lot of these big data vendors like to to um, showcase at their conferences you're going to have to write that in code i think there's no way around it and, and there's a lot of thing that things that code give you like uh, uh, source control merging real development driven life cycle regression testing all those things that developers have expected for years that have just always been absent in traditional BI tools, traditional ETL tools. So the traditional ETL tools started with the GUI and, and, and everything else, you know, the lifecycle capabilities were always secondary. I think that code gives you that capability. So if you're massively changing with a lot of developers, there's no GUI solution in my mind that's going to satisfy uh, a data-driven workflow with lots of developers, uh, you know, innovating often. At the same time, uh, what StreamSets gives you is the ability, you know, if you want to take your maiden voyage, as I said before, into big data, do you have to go hire five developers to be able to do it? I mean, put your toe in the water, get, give StreamSets a try. And for, for a lot of the projects we've done, we don't need to, to fall back to code. And also they, they have uh, what's called process, uh, processor stages, which are intermediate stages that you can, uh, that automatically serialize and deserialize the JSON or Avro for you into objects that you can just uh, code around. So there's, there's uh, lots of opportunities for you to code within the StreamSets tool. But, what's, but what is missing from StreamSets that you're going to get from pure code is that whole source control, um, you know, regression testing, continuous integration, Jenkins deployments, Jenkins automation, all that kind of stuff that developers just expect. Um, obviously, you can do that with stream sets. The, the, the artifacts are JSON after all, so you can check them in the source, et cetera. It's just not as natural as writing something like Java code. Okay. Did you think, do you, and one little point there, do you think stream sets is, is a little bit too focused on on-premise? I noticed that you know, for example, there's no, as far as I'm aware, there's no BigQuery integration and, and so on. Is it is it is it kind of designed for on-premise and doesn't really translate to cloud? And what's your view on that? 
So they do have big table integration. Yeah, right. I have not yeah. I have not played with that yet. So uh, presumably you could maybe uh, do some things uh, on top of that. But yes, I mean, I think I hope uh, that that they're thinking about this because, you know, we can do an entire platform as a service architecture from start to finish. But if we use stream sets, we're going to have, uh, you know, some sort of compute um, uh, because there's no way for me to deploy. There's no way for me to deploy uh, stream sets really in a pure platform. No, no, that's right. It's, it's predicated on it sort of being, you know, as part of a data center and stuff like that, really, isn't it? Yeah. So, I, you know, obviously you can run it on compute yeah. um, infrastructure and when everything else that you have is running mm. is running platform. But um, I really do hope that they're thinking about that because if if they ran a, a service, you know, I should throw that, you know, Confluent Cloud was just announced. And, and that was always something that I uh, – um, a weakness I felt in Confluent because it was very much predicated on on-prem. So hopefully, you know, and Oracle's also rolling out Kafka in the cloud. So, you know, I think we're going to see that sort of ingestion layer move to the cloud. And, that, and that's a – and that's an that's a really important step, but we need you know if you're in the Google Cloud, for instance, if you're doing BigQuery and you're thinking about stream sets, it's going to be uh, obviously it's coding, but you're going to look at data flow because it's it's in the cloud, it's part of the platform. Security layer is the same, um, the, uh, and it's really easy to get up and running with data flow if what you're loading is BigQuery. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a vendor, I've got, I'm trying to find the name actually now, there's a, vend, there's a vendor out there that has integrated with BigQuery that, that their service is available as a kind of Google, Google Compute Engine um, image that can be spun up. Uh, and, is it and Matillion? So, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, that's the one. And, uh, and, and that's that's at a very basic level. I mean, it's just a VM effectively running in the cloud. But I guess, I guess the problem that you're going to have if you run stream sets or a tool like that on-premise is just that moving data from the cloud to on-premise and, and so on, really. But you've got to kind of play in that world, really. You've got to, I mean, I guess it's all about partnerships, really, isn't it? It is. And, uh, you know, I think hopefully that, that we'll see some platform from from... Stream sets, I think it would be a, a, a really nice addition. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, unless you're doing um, Google uh, Dataflow, mm. uh, I mean, what other platform-based processing layer is mm. there? Mm. Well, I pub, mean, PubSub is obviously the, the Kafka equivalent. Yeah. Well, so you got PubSub to, to Dataflow, that mm. whole sort of stream that Google mm. has. But if you're going to go build, uh, you know, anywhere else but the Google Cloud, I think mm. there's not really a platform-driven um, data processing or data pipelining layer out there. Mm. We need it. It's the sort of the last. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's the last uh, step. Yeah. To being able to run everything really in the in okay. the cloud, which okay. is what we all want. Okay, so before we go on to Looker, one last question. Um, so one of the things that that that, um, that Streamsets talk about is this idea of data drift. And I guess it's that problem you have when you work with doing ETL with a big data system where the schema can change over time and almost is designed to do that. Is that a problem that you found was one that needs to be addressed? And if so, how well did it address it? And, and, and what's your thoughts on that, really? So I think it is a problem in traditional uh, warehouses. Uh, well, so there's good and bad in this, right? So it's a... It's a uh, it's a nice to have, but I think Gwen actually sort of talked about this in your last episode. Uh, was is it a is it a sweet or is it a pill? I think that the idea of being able to support schema drift is great if that's what you need. But what's good about stream sets is you can you can accept data drift or not uh, accept data drift, and, and just you know data drift is just the concept that new attributes may be added to a to a data set. Uh, they might be subtracted or removed. And you think about a traditional data warehouse with, with multiple staging layers. And, uh, you know, if we went back to the old Oracle reference architecture, you had a foundation layer and then a, and then a, a serving layer or a presentation layer, um, access and performance layer, I think it was called. Imagine how many different places we would have to, to change um, a data uh, type or, uh, or a table column throughout these workflows. And I think that if what you need is is strict schema, then maybe you want that. And maybe that's a constraint that you actually want to introduce. But what if you don't want that constraint? What if your data um, 
application or your analytics application should just flow on through when new attributes are added and not fail in error. Um, what's great about um, uh, tools that support data drift and the the query engines do as well, right? So when you're if you're using some of the standard sort of loading techniques, it doesn't um, get mad at you if columns have have been removed. It just won't load them. And if they've been added, it might not load them unless you specify it, unless there's a matching column in the target. So, but you really do want to support uh, data drift for a good portion of your workflow. I would say for for loading a data lake, you don't want to. Um, why you don't put data lake in a relational database is because you don't think all the changes and new data sources and those sorts of things that would require table design. You don't want to get slow, slowed down by that. However, some of your downstream analytic applications, some of those that might be finance related, some of those that might be, you know, uh, Inman's one version of the truth type solutions, maybe you do want the constraints there. What something like stream sets or any uh, technology that supports data drift gives you is the ability to support it or not support it. And you can support it at different uh, uh, stages in your workflow. It's been tremendous for getting a data lake built. I can just imagine conceptually, you know, I know you've built, I've built them with you, um, relational precursors to data lakes where we're trying to to land all of the data without prejudice from the source systems. And it's just massive amounts of, of modeling changes that have to occur all the time to be able to support in a data lake layer and maybe even several uh, layers past that, uh, the ability for things just to sort of flow through and work um, until you really need to start constraining schema changes. These new modern tools give you the ability to sort of to have your cake and eat it too, to use a terrible okay. cliche. Okay, so let's get let's, let's get on to the last topic is is BI and Looker. Okay, so Looker is a is a BI tool that um, is is kind of fairly sort of flavor at the moment, moment within the kind of big data and, and analytics world. It's um, it's web based. It's delivered as a service. Um, the company I'm working with at the moment they use it to um, to build out an analytics platform on top of kind of BigQuery. Um, the the interesting thing with it, two things really that, that are interesting with it are first of all that it accesses engines like BigQuery very efficiently, which makes a big difference when other tools like say Tableau are used to doing select staff and whatever all the time. And those engines, yeah. are, those engines are charged on kind of the amount of data you access. The second one, though, and this is why on Twitter I, I happened to say at the time, I suspect you blew your beans when you kind of saw this, was <laughs> was the way that Looker handles look at metadata with Looker Mail. Do you want to just explain why I thought that and, and what's interesting uh, about Looker Mail and what it's, how different it is to what we were working with before? Certainly, uh, I won't pick on any one vendor. Although mm. most people probably know the one know who know me know the one I have mm. the most experience with. But traditional BI tools uh, that have metadata layers have typically stored that in some sort of uh, proprietary format, maybe in binary format, maybe in convoluted XML, which is difficult to read. So you know, even if you wanted to put those metadata layers into something like source control. It's it's unreadable. It's uh, unrecognizable in most cases for when you, for when it comes time to try to do real uh, multi-user development, source control, and feature branch-driven development. It just you know obviously we've built a tool called Checkmate for for Oracle Business Intelligence to try to do some of that. But at the end of the day, it's still um, it's still not a natural. Um, sort of state of being, I'll say. And so what look what LookML is and what Looker does is they have a, a metadata layer that is, it really looks like a YAML file. And I think in the previous versions, it actually was uh, strictly YAML. But now it's, uh, it's, a, it's a DSL language for anyone out there, you know, domain specific language. It's it's a, it's a configuration language that allows you to easily configure your semantic model in a text file. And portions of the presentation layer can be done that way and Looker as well. And, you know, uh, Safe Harbor doesn't mean anything to, to, to Looker folks, but, the you know, the, the, their roadmap is, is robust for trying to, to make all of this sort of work uh, from a source control perspective, even the front end layer. So uh, the idea that, that it's text-based 
um, immediately you could say, well, that's great. I can export it out and put it into a version control tool. And that's what you probably would have done with a traditional BI tool and maybe even written some processing around it. What that, what Looker has done is actually taken care of that for you. They didn't try, they didn't try to satisfy, you know, their subversion users, their get on premises or BI, you know, get labs or et cetera. They just said, you know what, GitHub, we're going to go with GitHub, lowest common denominator. Uh, I think it works for GitHub Enterprise as well, probably it's, it's does. It's Git in general, isn't it, really? I think it's Git in general. I think it's, yeah. I think it's is it? Yeah, uh, yeah. I've only used it with GitHub. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. It's Git in general, yeah. yeah. Okay, so my mistake. But just making the, the, the metadata layer uh, a file-based and then also automatically taking care of its integration with a BI tool, uh, with a source control. So that, you know, if you enable this, then you've got a lot of options. Every user automatically gets their own branch. Uh, I'd like to see feature branch support. Uh, they've mentioned it um, in some of our calls, but it's not there at the time. So, But still, just having every user with their own branch when they do work, they can either inside the Looker tool, they can integrate their code um, into the master branch or they can – uh, we can open pull requests that supports both so that you can do pull request uh, based regression testing and deployments, uh, re pull request based workflows, which is the way the, the newest version of Jenkins works for most in most cases. So, yeah, I mean, it's just some of these problems that we've dealt with uh, with more traditional tools for years. You know, developers are going to do what's easiest. And if what's easiest for them is to ignore source control and email artifacts around that's what they're going to do looker said you know what we got to make this really really easy and that's exactly what they've done so it's been you know it's been a wonderful sort of uh experience and also one, one final thing um with, with the quality of the metadata layer is that you know when you reverse engineer a source for the first time you know looker has an opinion about what's there and pre-creates you a metadata layer now it's not going to be everything you need but the time it takes uh, to get up and running no provisioning no installation no integration you're just up and running um, it's fantastic and it really does does increase the the capacity at which bi developers can produce stuff so so in terms of building so you mentioned there that that, that metadata layer and that there's views and there's models and there's um explores and so on there exactly have you been able to build in the end in the end is what you build still a dimensional model um or are you able to do anything kind of more kind of interesting or more or i guess in a way what i'm getting to with this is more appropriate to the type of data and the type of data structures that you have within things like bigquery i mean one of the problem one of the problem cases we had was in my current place is is that everything is many to many and everything is event level and so on which meant that we how we built the metadata layer had to be different how have you found that really what have you built and how's it worked yeah there's there's some things that it that um it doesn't do uh, that you might expect a more dimensional based BI tool to do. There's workarounds. They've recognized it. They've talked about roadmaps. But some of the things mm. like drill like drill across just yeah. automatically working across. But things like all your symmetric facts. aggregates, for example. I mean, is that something you've looked at or, or had a need to Absolutely. use? Absolutely. Yeah. So maybe explain what that is and, and, and if there's anything innovative in what, what Luca are doing there. Yeah, so it's the it's the ability for you to define from a from sort of a, a a measure by measure basis how the aggregation rules work and how they're they're to be um, applied across dimensions. And so you know this is the the classic example of of uh, over allocation that you get if you, if your uh, dimensional model hasn't been done right, double counting, triple counting for certain situations. Um, now, if you know clearly what's being stored and what grain your fact table is at, it's hard to make those those mistakes, and and that's what metadata layers are for. But they give you the the real flexibility to to determine how rollups are going to occur, and they call it that symmetric aggregation, and that you know works in a lot of cases. Um, we found that that. Because the, the looker is more targeted at some of these sort of non-traditional data stores, I'll say, um, when you get into discussions with, with um, their engineers, 
they'll come at you with a lot of solutions that are more sort of nested table solutions and 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 big query like solutions athena like solutions and that's great so i think that there is a learning curve it, it looks and feels dimensional a lot of cases it isn't 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 it i mean I, I, exactly it's, it's sort of you know it's more I, i've thought of the i've so there's a concept of views and there's a concept of those kind of folders in the uh in in the kind of the the front you know the front end that you build out do you consider those to be subject areas or or fact tables or just tables or what what do you how do you conceptually model the semantic model within looker for yourself I've seen both. Mm. So I, I think we, coming from traditional BI tools, tend to think in terms of subject areas and tend to tend to want to force that on whatever we build. So I think that's our starting point. I think we've had some rework at, um, at one customer um, going going in with that mentality. So I think it is flexible, um, and that may not be what a lot of traditional BI tool um, developers want to hear. But I don't think you can necessarily declare the grain in, in Kimball uh, terminology. You, you can't necessarily declare that ever. You know, um, we're going to build subject areas in this layer or that layer. I think you've got to be. It's different, isn't it? It's just flexible. different. It is. It is different. It, it's more like universes, really. Mm. Um, uh, universes uh, in business objects were always a little bit more flexible than, say, business models in Oracle Business Intelligence. So I think. You know, you've got to think in terms of flexibility and what's the what's the solution at hand. If what you're trying to deliver is a dimensional model to your end users, you might think in terms of subject areas and try to design things in that way. On the other hand, you know, I've seen through my years of using Oracle Business Intelligence, mm. uh, a tool that's supposed to deliver subject areas, anything but, because the developers have just constantly worked around and worked mm. around and worked around mm. a a very dogmatic. Uh, perspective that the tool has, I think that you've got to do what works. You've got to be willing to refactor uh, something that you know developers and data engineers will consider. I think we've always in, in business intelligence, and I'm talking more traditional business intelligence. Mm. We've always we've we've always sort of uh, thought that whatever we deliver has to be perfect, and we'll spend lots and lots of uh, cycles. Uh, you know, thinking about the best way to build this, the best way to model it, such that when we deliver something, it's perfect. I think uh, if there's one thing that that using some of these new tools has taught is that refactoring is fine. Get people content, especially if the tool is flexible enough for you to be able to refactor quickly and easily. Okay. Okay. One last question then: Is there a consulting business around this? Because one again, one of the things that you can often think about is that the users of these systems, so things like BigQuery and, and Athena and Looker and so on, are typically, I guess, more technically kind of focused, maybe startups and so on. And there's obviously the cloud element there, where a lot of stuff is done for you automatically. What's the kind of business model like around it? Is there a business, or is it more kind of like a hobby, or, or what really? So. Uh, I use a I use a phrase all the time that I stole from you. Uh, yeah. I believe I stole from you, which is I didn't get into BI to build web logic clusters. Uh, <laughs> that's not you know, or to do Active Directory yeah. integration um, and do all these sort of things that are necessary on prem. So I that's not what what uh, gets me up in the morning. It's it's building things with data, and I think if you address uh, the actual problem of helping companies do things with data as opposed to being the only person that knows how to install these three products and make them work together. I think if you're, if you look at, especially the last few uh, shows uh, that you've done, there's a lot of help that enterprise customers are going to need to adopt these tools. So those, those organizations typically um, have, you know, hired people that are familiar with tools and not coding uh, are they going to immediately go out for their first project and hire five developers? Uh, no. So what we've seen a lot is that, um, you know, some of these are our traditional customers that were helped taking, taking to the new world or, you know, new customers that uh, maybe weren't our uh, BI uh, customer in the past, but have been traditional BI customers in the past. They don't know what, in, in, not all of them, many of them have, have, folks that work there that, that are very familiar with the technologies. That's why they're trying to drive the organization to use them because they can provide tremendous value. But they don't have a team or a staff 
we've actually got several uh, customers where they just haven't hired a BI team. They've just hired us and we're doing um, dashboard development, uh, pipeline development, data driven application construction, uh, the type of things that, yeah, a startup would probably have full time employees for, but organizations, departmental uh, uh, acquisitions, et cetera, are bringing us in to, to do a lot of the things that maybe a startup would do with, with full-time employees. Will that continue? Do we need to evolve and pivot again in the future? That's quite possible. This is a very dynamic, uh, <laughs> dynamic industry at the moment. I think we're, you know, we're, we're fully capable of doing it and I'm excited. Uh, I'm not down by the idea that, that, and, and, and our, uh, employees are just, so happy working with these technologies. I mean, they they're really excited to be um, doing new things. I mean, all of us all of us get happy to to all of us are happy to try to, to do new things and learn new skills. Excellent, excellent. Well, Stuart, I'll better let you go now because it's uh, we've been speaking for about an hour. Um, it's been great to speak to you. I mean, we'll have you back on again at some point in the future as well. But I think it's been really interesting to get the perspective of someone who's been doing this for a long time who's seen. I suppose old world, new world, and so on. He's enthusiastic about these things and is actually delivering customer projects. So, thank you very much for coming on, Stuart, and uh, it's been great to have you. Well, Mark, I really appreciate it. Thanks for always uh, trusting my opinion, um, yes. and, I, and I look forward to uh, to doing another show in the future. Okay, so, excellent. Thank you. Cheers. Mm-hmm.